Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to a very special edition of the SportsMediaWatch.com podcast. I'm TJ Reeves, and we're about to have a conversation with Boston Celtics play-by-play man on the radio, Sean Grandy. We had an opportunity recently, John Lewis and I, to speak with Sean about what it was like to call this year's NBA Finals for the Celtics against the Golden State Warriors. And his career has now stretched long enough that he and Cedric Cornbread Maxwell are about to have done their 2,000th game on the radio doing the Celtics. You're going to find out a lot about Sean's background, how he ended up not only from New York originally into the Boston market, how he then ended up doing TV for the Minnesota Timberwolves and back in Boston as well his career arc, and all of his other freelance opportunities besides just doing NBA basketball. It's a fascinating conversation, again, with an NBA play-by-play voice. Let's get to it now as John Lewis and I spoke with the play-by-play voice that calls those Boston Celtic games on the radio. All right. Well, uh, we're very happy this week to be joined by the great Sean Grandy, the radio voice of the Boston Celtics and uh, someone who can uh, uh, offer a lot of insight about one of the most interesting jobs in sports media, which is covering a team day in and day out for an entire season. So it's obviously uh, late August. This is a slow period. Uh, I've had the pleasure of having you uh, visit my classes before and actually even in person which over the past two years, having an in-person guest speaker is very rare. So, uh, and one of the things that you uh, said when, when, when you visited my class back in November was that doing the NBA season is like one long day. So what is the off season like? Is it like the ultimate reprieve? Is it, are you trying to rush to get in all the things that you couldn't do for nine months of the year? You are this year because this became one short day in the offseason when you're playing until June 16th or June 18th, especially when you're not supposed to. The first year I was with the Celtics, they hadn't been in the playoffs in seven years. And the season went till May 31st or June 1st. And it it almost makes you more tired and more when you're not expecting it. And as everybody knows, in the middle of January, the Celtics were 11th in the East and they were under 500 and nobody had them going to game six of the finals. So. Uh, the offseason, it depends on whether you're in different iterations of your career. If I'm doing MMA stuff, am I doing boxing stuff, am I doing other sports on the side, am I just trying to be dad and make up for all the time I missed during the playoff run? So you're trying to do a lot of that. But it, it was noticeable to me. The, the thing that really hit me is when the draft and summer league happened. You're like, wait, what? What do you mean the draft? Like the draft was like the next week. And so that really does change you know, there's no, as I'm sure we're going to discuss, there's no better job. There are higher paying jobs in the industry than being the voice of a team. But, and I love all the national stuff I do. I love, and I love being a neutral announcer and all of that. But to me, the romance of the job is following a team from the opening day of training camp to the last day of their season. And then if you're lucky enough to do it for a while, becoming part of the furniture and having the institutional knowledge 
that you look back suddenly, you don't think of yourself as being old or being 20 something a year. Guys, this is my 25th year in the NBA I'm going into. And you're like, wow, that happened fast. <laughs> and yeah, you know, it's just before you know it, it's like having kids. They're how old? It's like, wait, you've been doing this how long? So, uh, but that that's the, the beauty of the job is telling that story. Yeah, the interesting thing about this past season, you kind of alluded to it. They were they were not good for a long period of time. They honestly, for a while, even into January, had a worse record than the Lakers did. And we know how bad a year it was for the Lakers. So when it's with a season like that, very rare to see a team have that kind of in-season turnaround. Was it something that you could kind of see coming from your vantage point covering the team that you could see them starting to improve? Or was it as big of a shock even for you in person as it was for, say, the rest of the observers seeing them uh, turn it on? Anyone who says they saw it coming is lying. There's no, you could not possibly have seen it coming. Were things going to get better? Yeah, listen, you get back, you get the distance from it, and you look back and say, wait a minute, you had two starters out with COVID during training camp. You had a brand new coach with a brand new staff, and he got COVID during training camp and didn't get the coach. And he was coming from the Olympics and the roster wasn't quite what it was going to be. And you knew they would be better in the second half of the year than they were in the first, but to suggest they were going to go to game six of the finals. And by the way, it wasn't a fluke of a playoff run. They were better in the second half of the regular season than they were in the playoffs from late March, the Rob Williams injury on the Celtics were good. They were really good. And they were one of the best four or five teams in the NBA. But for the nine weeks before that, mid-late January to the end of March, they were the best team, and it wasn't even close. They, they were historically good, and it was probably the best road team in Celtics history. Whenever I use things like that, it's not no disrespect to anybody, but it's not Sacramento Kings history or Charlotte Hornets history or whatever. It's Boston Celtics history. This is the best road team the franchise has ever had. So, no, nobody could see it coming together that fast. And, again, that's the beauty of it and why – we all became engaged in this in the first place and it's dominated our lives and we never went to go find real jobs because we were mesmerized by the unpredictability of telling a story, which I got to tell this year that had never been told before. One of the interesting things about your career is that you were not necessarily planning to go into the NBA, right? Uh, you were bigger on, correct me if I'm wrong, hockey, right? You were bigger on the NHL and you kind of got the NBA role through just saying yes. You know, uh, if someone asks you, hey, can you do this sport? You say yes. And now 25 years later, you're the voice of the Celtics. Do you feel like, you know, even though the NBA wasn't your first love, that really now it has become that for you? Or is it still one of those deals where you might still have a, a soft spot for the other sports you covered more so than for the NBA? TJ's nodding because he knows. He knows exactly when you were running through this, the, the circumstance by which it happens. I've spoken not just to your class, which is older kids, but now there's sports casting camps, right? Like kids, teenagers can have sports casting camps. Who, who could have imagined anything like this when we were teenagers? But it's awesome. And I always try to ask, you know, if it's in Boston, I'll ask them, hey, who here wants to be the voice of the Boston Red Sox? And virtually every hand goes up. I said, okay, let's do some math. You know, so it's about being prepared to be, one of you is going to be the voice of the Calgary Flames, the voice of the Seattle Storm, or the voice. This is how it's going to happen. So you have to be prepared. And I always say that basketball, it, not, it wasn't my number one. I don't know what my number one sport was, but basketball was number four. The other three were tied for number one. And, yeah, I was certainly tracking towards the NHL because that's the work in my 20s. I was one of the premier, not premier as far as doing the most games, visible voices of college hockey. 
it's almost the spot that Butchie's in now as kind of this uh, college hockey ambassador. I was headed in that direction and I was doing NHL stuff on the side and NHL radio stuff, but yeah, you can't. And then one day Howard David missed a flight. He was doing Monday night football and the Celtics and Howard David missed a flight coming back from Miami because there was snow in Boston. And someone walked into my update booth in the afternoon at four o'clock and said, get over to the garden because you're doing the Celtics. And <laughs> 25 years later, obviously the, the Timberwolves opening came up the following year. And all of a sudden I was 26, 27 years old and I have an NBA TV job. And that's how, and all of a sudden you look back and now you're 50 and it's like, Oh yeah, the NHL and whatever, but it's a great question because I'm going to just jump in a second because I am a brand new Red Sox season ticket holder. This is the first year I've done it with my son. It's a long story. My wife, who's obviously in the business, we had, you know, we formed a corporation and there's tax issues and whatever. So we decided to become Red Sox season ticket holders. I may have gone a little deeper in than she had let thought I was going to when I went to go look at the seats and I said, this is a half season. Oh, that's a full season. I can sit there. So going to a lot more games this year. I spent a year in the Red Sox booth in 2013. Did about 20, 25 games for Dave O'Brien. And then in the great broadcasting story, the rights changed hands. And my great summer job, which would have been mine forever, was gone because the Celtics and Max and I got traded to a different station. So are there moments when I, I'm sitting in a major league game going, well, I wonder you know, if this was really my calling. When I see hockey games and I remember the games that I did, whatever was that my, I'm a play-by-play guy, which is kind of where the Winston Wolf stuff started and what I had to do last week going out to South Dakota, no notice. If you're a play-by-play guy at heart, it's like being an actor or being anything. If you're truly that, when the call comes, you can do it. And the, when, again, when I tell the kids in the class, one of the first calls I ever got was during the 1998 World Cup, the person who did the New England Revolution was off doing the World Cup. So they called me from what was Sports Channel at the time, now NBC Boston, after many iterations. Hey, can you do soccer? And what I always tell all the kids, is, what's the answer to that question, kids? The answer is yes. The answer is always yes. And I had never been to a soccer game in my life. But the answer was yes. Wow. Because the play-by-play guy can do it. And again, that has to do with a separate thing we can talk about. But though my whole jump into MMA seven years ago was jumping off a cliff, which is terrifying. But as anyone who's ever done it will tell you, it's the only way to live your life. You got to take a chance and try something new and get out of your comfort zone. And so, no, I didn't expect to be doing the NBA for 25 years. You gave us a lot of meat on the bone there, and I wanted to hone in on the Minnesota part that landed you right back in Boston. Take us back to that time because you're doing the Timberwolves on TV. It's easy to say now that you could have envisioned being back in Boston doing games for a team, but I would have to think part of your mentality was, I'm going to stay here in Minnesota and I'm going to move up the TV ladder. (laughs) Take us back to that time. How did that work? Well, you have stumbled, CJ, onto one of the great moments of my career. As I often say, listen, anybody can go from local radio to network television. It takes a very special pioneer to go the other direction, <laughs> which is what ended up happening to me because I was doing, I was on ABC at age at 29. I was the fifth guy doing college football in a, in a five-man, you know, I'll put that group from 2000 at ABC and 2001 up against any that's done it. It was Brett Lusberger, Keith Jackson, Brad Nestler, Sean McDonough, and me, or as I've said for the last 20 years, a veritable who's who and one who's that. And later we had, later we had Mike Tarico in that group next year. I said, I'll take that, I'll take that five. I'll go to I'll go to war with that five, six man play by play group. But 
I'd love to tell you there was a dramatic story involved. There were two little elements that I always talk about. One was Cedric Maxwell calling me in Minnesota and saying, I think we'll be a great team. I think we should do this. And obviously we know that's turned out. To he be was, he was recruiting you. He, he was, you and, and he was recruiting you. Even though... the longest relationship either one of us has ever had uh, in our, in our life and <laughs> most successful. Um, but it's funny how life, I'd love to tell you there was a more broadcast centric story because it was terrifying being 31 or wherever, however old I was 29, 30, you're at the network. You've got an agent telling you, don't worry, we're going to keep you on TV. Boston's better than Minnesota. So take this radio job. It was terrifying. But the truth told, I was in my first marriage. My wife at the time was from Boston. She wanted to go home and be near her family. And I think you sometimes think there's going to be a Capra film ending to making decisions like that for your family. But obviously it changed the, the path I was on, certainly. Um, do I recommend it? <laughs> giving up uh, TV to do radio? Uh, it could work out for you. It, it might not. But that was a, a life decision. And uh, it was it's the, the, all the years I've spent doing Celtics radio, I've gotten to do some pretty awesome things that I would not have been able to do. And there's a separate conversation to have more meat on the bone which is something I'm facing now as Mike Gorman gets into his you know, final couple of years here or whatever he wants to do of how NBA local television is not really what it seems like in that people I've been anticipating my making that move for 20 years sliding over to TV. Well, TV in the NBA at the local level, you're losing all the good games. You lose the top 12 games off the schedule because they go to national TV and then you get kicked out for the playoffs. And so suddenly you say to yourself, wait a minute, if you're 28 years old and you have this thing in front of you, yeah, TV's more exposure and whatever. Sure. That's the natural thing. But when you get to be my age and my stage, I'm not sure TV seems more glamorous, but not if you're just doing the Sacramento games. You know, on that topic, uh, so you obviously got to go all the way through the NBA finals. Uh, you know, th this is uh, the, the second time, the third time, actually. So it would have been 08, 10 and, and this year. What is that experience like? You know, it, do you feel the level of nerves that might even be comparable to a player when you're getting into certainly game seven Staples Center against the Lakers in 2010? What is the level of nervousness that you're feeling? I think it changes when you're younger, certainly. And the first time through, I think it's all about you, you want to do it right. And you also don't want to change anything dramatically. It's funny because in some ways, the seventh game was the easiest. Seventh game of the NBA Finals was the easiest game I've ever had to do because you all you just call the game. Just call the game. You don't need to. When it's game 12 in Charlotte, and I don't say you're conjuring a storyline, but why does this, my job, whatever I do, if it's a fight, if it's a game, it's a hockey game, a football game, whatever I'm doing, why does this matter? Why am I, Aaron Sorkin always says, it is the job of a performer or a creative person, whatever, to captivate the attention of the audience as long as you are asking for it. I'm asking for your attention for two and a half hours, so this better matter. So I can't be going through the motion. It's not hard to figure out why it matters to do game seven of the NBA Finals. My, my story from that game is, you know, one of my great friends, Doris Burke, and she was doing sidelines. We're sitting next to each other for game seven of the finals in 2010. And we're courtside in L.A., which obviously is like a dinosaur now in the NBA. We get to sit courtside. And behind us are Steven Spielberg and Stallone and Eddie Murphy and Dustin Hoffman's four rows back. And we are closer to the action. 
And she went to go interview Doc at the end of the first quarter and they hand out the stat sheets and the piece of paper in front of you. And I took, I took mine, I flipped it over to the blank sheet in the back and I drew two circles. And I wrote something and I put it in front of her. When she got back, she looked at it. And the big circle, I wrote world. And the little circle with a dot in the middle was us. Like, this is a, we are right in the middle of the, like we're kicking each other under the table during the entire final. So I think I am probably over sensitive to history and documenting things and knowing that they're going to be remembered. So when you're in the finals, it's, it's do it right and tell the story, whatever, wherever the story takes you. If it's a golden state story, it becomes a golden state story, but you try not to get too caught up in, getting the call right and come up with this perfect call, whatever you have to let that stuff happen naturally. I can tell you right now, everyone remembers me and Max for the end of 08 for what happened at the end of game six, but the game five call would have been completely different if the Celtics had won as I thought they would in game five in 2008. So call what's in front of you, whether you're doing a high school baseball game that you took a tape recorder out to do, or you're calling game seven. Love all of this stuff. Yeah, dress better is is part of it too. Although I always I always laugh at that, especially at radio announcers uh, that have to mac out. And and, and cornbread is obviously one of those that would probably He's do the that. Reason. Now he he right. raises the bar because Max but, is always decked out. I thought that was the one advantage to going to is radio. Is he doing like any TV usually though at the games, being interviewed sometimes, even or whatever? Sometimes yeah, he because, does that sometimes, but because mostly the, he just is. That's his. The opposite end of the spectrum is John Miller would do Baltimore Oriole games in a t-shirt, shorts, and flip-flops, literally on the radio, John Lewis. I don't know if you did, if you knew that he would literally sit in the Orioles uh, old uh, Memorial stadium press box in a t-shirt shorts and flip-flops. So there's the exact opposite because he knew he was doing radio. Now he put a suit on or whatever to do ESPN Sunday night baseball. If that was the case, I want to pick up on one thing you mentioned in an NBA season, I'm fascinated by this. You play a lot of back-to-back games, let's say, on the road. I know you roll your eyes and you and you hope that that doesn't happen very often, but there are occasions where you'll be, let's say, in Philadelphia and the next night in Brooklyn. In terms of what you do, in terms of preparation, are you looking at all at the second team on the second night the day before, or are you only on the first team that night and I'll get to Brooklyn tomorrow morning mentally for the for the Nets game the following night because you've been doing this for a while now. What about that part? Because I find that fascinating. You're looking ahead to your prep. Now the question is, you're saying that we're Brooklyn or whatever it is, and it's usually the travels much farther than that. Did that team also play? That's another question. So if you're in the city, if if Team B played on Thursday and your game is Friday and the back to back is Saturday, you're watching their game Thursday and you can start to sketch stuff and put it together and you have a pretty good idea. You know, is it? Game five of the season is a game 75. That changes when you're because you've done a team three or four times when you when you see them again. But you know those if you're ever on a late night flight and there's that one guy who's got his light on, right? Because he's he's got the laptop on. He's like, that's me on the at 2 a.m. when everybody else is asleep on the plane, you're going to the next city. I'm a late night, I'm a late night person. I don't do breakfast. I don't do more, like I'm not well, I'm a play-by-play guy. I work at night. But that's the far cry, as you know, as you well know, I miss. When I was doing football regularly, I love the football week. I love Monday. All right, here's Monday. I'm sitting down. This is what I want on my boards on Monday. This is what happens on Tuesday. And there's this news conference and this. And then you're starting to see the depth chart. This is what they did last week. And that whole prep and the exact opposite of that is a back-to-back NBA game where you just sort of thrust in. The true back, the true difference, I think, is baseball, which is the year. That's a whole different lifestyle because you get to the ballpark so early. And the first time I did a day game after a night game in baseball, I said, are you kidding? I mean, what? 
what just happened? I just got back to the hotel. And now you're back at the ballpark the next morning. I would say Cedric Maxwell, my guy, he'd hang himself in shoelaces if he had to, you know, be at the ballpark 16 hours later or whatever it is. But all the preps are different. I love them. Uh, all each individually fights are different. You know, I said, I really do miss the football prep in that full week, but that is the, the opposite of you have to figure out whatever it is going to get your legs underneath you. And the back-to-back games are no, you know, it's better than having to play. Yep. I think one of the interesting things about the whole circumstance of the past few years is the lack of travel that a lot of people have had. Uh, So Obviously, you probably heard about what went on with the Portland Trailblazers. Yeah. Uh, they made the decision they're going to have their radio team be remote, and then there was a lot of outrage, and they they reneged on that decision. You, now, I want to I want to jump in for ten seconds, and then you sure. go back. It's important thing to talk about because this thing that really irritates me. Because I saw websites saying Trailblazers backtrack. Trailblazers have to re. Isn't that what you're supposed to do? Like it was almost like it was a negative that they had corrected their position. And done the right thing. It's like, oh, they had to they had to backtrack and they had to run. No, they listened to what their customers wanted, realized this is the best thing, and they did it. So that was just something. I, mean, I don't know when I get another chance to say that, but that just irritated me that people were saying they killed them for doing it. And then when they fixed it, they killed them for that too, saying they were backtracking off their stand. No, they fixed they fixed the problem. It's the way it's supposed to happen. Well, I think the main thing is the idea was so offensive to people that the fact that they had to backtrack was the real issue, right? Because they should never have done it in the first place. But the interesting thing to me is play-by-play seems like all of these jobs, play-by-play, sideline, et cetera, seem really involved in terms of the amount of your time that you were devoting to the workplace, right? This is, you know, constant travel, as you said, it's one long day. You're away from family. And, you know, uh, I don't know if it was you who said this. It might have been uh, one of your colleagues who was also visiting my class talking about at the end of the game, you would go to the plane and the plane has nothing but extremely unhealthy food on it. But because you haven't eaten all day, right, and you're basically eating unhealthy food at three in the morning, it's a lot. So there's that. But then if you are having the convenience of working from home, there's the negative impact on the audience. So what are your thoughts? I, I, I know your thoughts about remote broadcasting, but do you think there's a way to use some elements of what we've seen happen over the past couple of years to make this job a little bit less demanding in that way? Well, absolutely. And the first answer is, listen, I, I've given this answer a lot, which is that you can't do my job if you're not with the team. You can't do it correctly. You can't do well. The first year we did it, the, the Celtics were in a bubble. Listen, I can text Brad Stevens whatever I want. I just text him, and then, you know, before the game, everything was fine. Because, again, if you have institutional memory, there's another announcer in the NBA. His team got a new coach in 2021. He didn't meet the coach. The play-by-play announcer and the coach did not meet until the fall, like a year later, like the following year. So there was a disconnect, and there's a disconnect. I – listen – I'm old fashioned. I think broadcasters should be able to, you know, see the game from wherever they're sitting in the arena, old fashioned things like that. Do I think that listen, if sitting out a road trip to do a couple of games on remote extends maybe an analyst or a play by play guy who's gotten a little bit older or whatever, listen, baseball announcers, I don't, how many guys are doing 162 games? Anymore? I don't think it works that much like that anymore. I don't follow it as closely, but it doesn't seem like it. There's always guys going here and there and, missing games 
uh, as far as the technology is concerned, I will say this. At the arena, you have a, a checklist of things you have to do. I've got to do my pregame conversation with the coach. I have different pregame segments, things that have to be recorded. Meanwhile, one coach is given a press conference, then you maybe have to run to the other part of the building to do that. Sometimes things train wreck. The, putting things on Zoom, I know the beat writers hate it because they lose their individual one-on-one -on -one time and things like that. But for someone like me who has to hear everything, all, everything being on Zoom has been great. It's because you're, all the content is there. You can find the content when you want. You don't have to drive out to practice. To, if you, you, know, you can just watch on Zoom. And again, I, I understand why from a beat writer standpoint, that could be a negative. But of course, advantages have come from this. And people not traveling. The games I did on TV last year for the Celtics, I don't know how many they were, seven or eight, when they finally they started traveling again because they were like, we're going to travel. And so I did the road games on TV, and we didn't travel our producer. Our producer was in my ear the way he always was, but he was sitting back in Needham, Massachusetts, you know, doing the same thing. So I think that direction is coming. I The romance to me of television, sports television, is a group of people going on the road as a team, producing a, a great telecast. But I recognize the financial reality and, again, the family reality of some people. There are things you don't have to do anymore. On Deloitte's OnCloud podcast, my co-host Mike Cavus and I talk with innovation leaders to explore how they use cloud engineering for new possibilities for their organizations. Join myself, David Linthicum, by subscribing to OnCloud wherever you get your podcasts. Love this insight. Sean is with us for a couple of more minutes. Okay, so I've been dying to ask this one. I go back as a Celtic fan. I was a, uh, I was a kid that grew up in the South and not around any NBA teams, no NBA city around us in Tennessee, et cetera. So like millions of others gravitated to Larry Bird and the Celtics because you were either gravitating to the Celtics or maybe if you were in the West, especially you would gravitate to Magic and the Lakers. So I never really heard very much, if ever, Johnny Most do a game on the radio. It wasn't until years later that you became familiar with his calls, the stuff on the NBA home video of him calling games. He was a legend, though, for calling the Celtics games for decades on the radio, obviously. I don't know if you ever got to meet him, talk to him, if he was gone, if he had died or whatever before you were ever there, but you're now in a chair that Johnny Most used to occupy. And I just wonder about all of that. I'm fascinated about all of that. What are your what are your uh, thoughts and give us any input you have on that? I used to get the question a lot, obviously, when I first took the job. And there have been guys in between. Mm -hmm. But now, again, talking about when you start talking about the longevity here, there's there's Mike Gorman, there's me, and there's Johnny as far as just the number of years, the volume of games. Max and I are going to do our 2000th game together coming up like this year. So Wow, congratulations. Yeah, I know. It, it gets crazy like that. Um, and it's funny. Mike and Tommy are a legendary team in Boston. Somebody just told me, and I haven't fact-checked it or whatever, but Max and I have now done more games together than Mike and Tommy did. Because remember, for years, they only did – I see some surprise looks because, remember, Mike, the first 20 years, was only doing 30-something games a year on cable. He wasn't doing the over-the-air. So as many years as Mike's doing it, the first 20-some-odd years, he was only doing – anyway, that's irrelevant other than the, the time really does hit you. Johnny came from a different time. And yes, when I met him, it was right. It was very much at the end. I was, I think, an intern and maybe just starting to work at the sports station when he was finishing up. This is 30 years ago. Uh, but he and he became a caricature later in his career and was probably the only one accurately portrayed in winning time um, this past year. <laughs> the only the one HBO show. Right, right. Exaggerate to to get it right. But Johnny was from the Marty Glickman school you know, coming up from through New York and covering the Brooklyn Dodgers and things like that. 
he took a very, uh, an approach, there's the Homer approach. And Professor, you and I had this conversation, I'm sure when I was in your class, about the Homer approach that some local announcers take. It's not mine. I don't believe in it, but I don't, if that's your thing, do it. Gus Johnson, a friend of mine, has a very unique, specific style. People like it or they don't. Do you. Do, do it the way you do it. There is no right or wrong way. There's the way I'm going to do a game, and there's the way other people are going to do games. Johnny, you know, could call the game right, but he was told very early on that fans don't want this back in the 60s. Call it, you know, root for your team. And the famous story about Johnny that I would hear at the beginning of my Celtics tenure, I might run into some of the same visiting radio engineers that might have been there when Johnny was there in the final. And what Johnny would do in the old and olden days is when he got to a town and he'd sit down at the table, he'd say, is this game on TV or not? Because at the time it was, and if it wasn't on TV, it was the wild West. And he was creating his, own, it was, you know, that turn your page at the end of the page, turn to page six to make your own story. That, and that's how, that was Johnny's style. Make your own story. And Tommy Heinsohn, who, you know, we miss every day, Tommy carried that tradition on as the home announcer. And it was almost to the point of comedy where he would say, that's a terrible, and you could see it. It was television. It's like, that wasn't a terrible call, but it doesn't, it doesn't matter to you. So Johnny was beloved. Yeah. Because he openly rooted for this, but he had a very unique style and obviously a very unique sound. And it's funny because in so many ways, I am the exact opposite of the way Johnny called games, but he was a, he was a man of his time. And can you imagine what the blogs and awful announcing would be saying? They'd be posting Johnny clips now every day. Like, do you believe the way is, you know, like a John Sterling thing, or do you believe the way that they didn't mm-hmm. this guy, this Johnny most went crazy again last night. That's what he did. That's I describe did. it as Chris Rock bit about the tiger that attacked Siegfried and Roy. That tiger didn't go crazy. That tiger went tiger. <laughs> tiger was a tiger and and i equated to a fan on the air and there was a lot more of that 60s 70s and 80s a fan on the air on the mic harry Carey was a fan on the air of the cardinals and the cubs and built an empire around being a fan on the air and even being out in the bleachers with his shirt off doing a game on an occasion on wgn it's just it's different in that regard john is, is there it, anything else here well, this is the opposite now what's interesting is that you have to now you're dealing with the, like the talk show talking head thing and it's easy a lot of people are like oh those talking head people that it's it's a show people what skip says is a show what Stephen a says and he's brilliant at it it's a show people complain about how much money they make they make that money because people watch and that that performance works i think what's different now as a play-by-play guy people have had 21 hours if they wanted of that level of conversation that tone of conversation You have to, it doesn't carry over onto the play-by-play broadcast, but you have to be able to speak that language and you have to be, you you are bilingual in this field because if you just ignore the 21 hours that just came before and make up a story about Jason Tatum, there's a trade demand or so-and-so, whatever, for 21 hours, Celtic player X has demanded to be traded and there's all these stories and Woj says this and Sham says this or whatever. You can't come on at 7.30 as if the rest of the world didn't exist. You can't do it, but there's a way, you know, there, there's a way obviously to weave it in. You have to be, it's different. Whereas in the old days, again, you can make up your own, write your own story. And some guys it. still do that. Is this game on TV? Is this yeah, game on I, TV tonight? I love that. Right. You just, I, is this game, that was, that's true story. Is this on the TV? So my free, it was the substitute teacher, right? Is this, we having a real teacher today or can I just throw spitballs all night here and 
play, as he would say back in what is now an inappropriate term, when he would always describe it back there as Cowboys and Indians, that he would, that he was going to make heroes and villains. And to me, there are ways to do that. There are ways, being a homer announcer to me, I'm never, ever, and everyone knows this, and it irritates people all the time when I say nice things about LeBron or nice things about St- or whatever, when you, when you call it like it is and you're, there was, especially when I first came here, there was like a pushback. Like what he said something nice about somebody on the other team. What did, you know, you have to call it like it is you get, but there are ways to do it. You're telling the story through Celtic glasses. So the story, when Tatum hits the game winner in game one, you're, there's a level of excitement because that is the Celtics broadcast. When Golden State won the championship, you're not calling it the same way, but you're not uh, that somebody unearthed it was amazing, an amazing find to me. One of my favorite 30 for 30s is the one they did with Slava Fatisov, which is the Russian side of what happened at Lake Placid. And it's brilliant. It's the, uh, it comes at it from the completely other side. And somebody found the radio broadcast back to Russia. And essentially the guy was like, and this doesn't look good for our team and the clock is running out and that is it. The score is the final, the buzzer has sounded and the final score is us four Soviets, uh, USSR three. And we are signing off our broadcast. Like, okay. So somewhere in between that there is, I'm sure that guy probably, you know, who knows what would have happened to him had he done it correctly, of course. but you get the point. There's a way to my call of golden state winning the championship. Wasn't didn't sound the way it would have Celtics won it, but it wasn't some monotone, Thing either it was documenting the moment but i don't even remember what i said but something about the gold you know they got counted out and they were nowhere in mid-season and they were whatever but the gold the gold has risen to the top again and because you're documenting the story of what's happening and not you know I, that's something to me that is it, there is a sacred i don't go around you know wringing my hands about the but it is a sacred job to me documenting of the history of whatever it is you're doing and that's that's part of it is calling it accurately of course you're going to inject personality and have fun and whatever nobody has more fun than max and i would goofing off for 20 something years but again you doing it now in that context of the world we're in the talking head world we're in it's much different when there might have been one call in radio show in the market now every market has full-time 24-hour sports radio and you can watch any issue being debated at, at any time and so we had two months of talking about Kevin Durant when there was nothing really to talk about. But <laughs> the greatest joke of all time, arguably, one of them certainly, and because I, I bring it up all the time, is the old Jerry Seinfeld bit about the two guys walking out of the newspaper at the end of the day. And one guy turns to the other and says, we just made it again. One more thing happens today. We're screwed. Like everything fit. Yeah. Uh, the, the joke being that we're whatever the news was, was going to go in the newspaper. So whatever, there's still those shows are going to be on every day. They don't come on at 10 in the morning. And Stephen A says, you got anything today? Nope, nothing happened today. All right, well, we'll see you tomorrow. It doesn't work that way. So you have to be aware of the surrounding you're in, whether it's the other 21 hours people are listening to or the technology and the way to do games. Everything's always changed. Social media, 10 years removed. A lot of people in my shoes didn't want, I didn't want to do it, yeah. but you got to jump in because everybody is, getting these games a different way. And so I ended up using social media as a way to, you know, do TV graphics. If I was on radio and you find a way to make it work for you, but it is not, people aren't sitting around anymore, moving, uh, you know, moving stick figures of Jason Tatum and Jalen Rice. Jalen's in the corner. Oh, let me move him on my board that I made here in the kitchen, the kitchen table. And oh, he's over here now. So you have to be able to speak whatever language is being spoken at the time. 
Yeah, or, uh, and no one will be able to see this, but I would use these as my basketball players and move them around the, the cards, the trading the cards. cards. <laughs> they would be yeah. a recreation of the game and yeah. what you did. You see, what I just did makes no sense on a podcast because we don't use video. I held up a Kevin uh, Kevin McHale basketball card. And the reason it looks as bad as it does is because when I was a kid, I would literally use that. You know, I didn't have NBA 2K at that time. But I did have a couple of questions. You brought up that whole issue of, you know, not wanting to sell short the moment just because the other team did it. Uh, Steph Curry had an incredible game for the finals, right? You can go back to LeBron game six in 2012. And then Butler did it again. I saw the same game. Yeah, Jimmy Butler. I got to call yeah. it twice. I told my son, my son is about to turn 11. I've been telling him his entire life about the LeBron game, not realizing he'd get a chance to see it himself in person for game six. It happened again. Well, let, you know, it's one of those things where when that happens, Celtic fans are probably heartbroken. So how do you figure out to, you know, you, you still want to give credence to that moment, but you don't want those Celtics fans who are sitting there going, I can't believe we're going to blow this. And especially the Jimmy Butler game, because at that point you have to be thinking, wow, what a golden opportunity. How do you find that balance where you're paying tribute to the great performance while also paying tribute to the listeners who are really upset? I think you should be able to tell by the way you're calling it and, not going back to Johnny, I remember hearing tapes of Johnny calling the Bernard King games against the Celtics, you know, in 84. And, uh, and Bernard from 20, good. And Bernard from 25, good. <laughs> right. Just just ticked off that Bernard is making all these shots. I think it's what I just said. Like, when you started to talk about that, I jumped you because my first thought as it was happening was how I called it is, is you're calling it in the context of a Celtics broadcast. So the story was happening. It was all set up for you. It was like, oh my God, this is happening again. I've already done this. I was sitting here in this same seat 10 years ago when LeBron wearing the same Miami jersey came in in game six down three, two. I've seen it already. So the storyline, it's not just this amazing game Jimmy Butler's having, but also that it had a built-in, that one had a built-in storyline with the Celtics because everybody, it had already happened before. And so the moment is when you're calling it for the team. Yeah, that thing is happening to your team. But sometimes it can be, oh, my God. It's not, oh, no, this awful thing is happening. It's, oh, my God, this thing is happening. Look at what LeBron James just did. Look at what Steph Curry just did. Jimmy Butler has had the game of his life. He called his shot. He's came in here, and he is carrying them to this extraordinary performance here in Boston. So you have to be – listen, we've all seen the great moments. When they're happening in front of you in the playoffs, and it's going to be something that's going to be talked about forever – Call it right. Quickly, because you've been most gracious with us. We've got to go. You've got to go as well here in a second. Fun one. I know you're from New York. You've worked forever in Boston. Other favorite city to go to in and around the NBA? Do you look forward to one more than the other? Maybe there's a couple of them. Real quick. Uh, I've always loved D.C. I've always loved Toronto. Um, I've always loved – I mean, I'm a, I'm a Northeast person. I'll tell you this, and under that umbrella in that context. I, my son had never been – I'm old enough to have been in the league when Seattle and Vancouver were in the league. I just took my son on vacation there. We were there for Sue Bird's last home game. Went to a couple of Mariners games. Been, my wife had never been to Vancouver, so we went to Vancouver. Uh, those were my two favorite places were Seattle and Vancouver. And I get the Canada thing. It is – we are past the point where it is excusable that there's no NBA team in Seattle. And we're talking on a weekend coming off that, you know, that tournament that Jamal Crawford had. Uh, it's clear it is an NBA city. 
I know why the team moved, had to move in the first place. There were arena issues that doesn't exist anymore. The NHL is there. I think we all know we're going to Vegas at some point, but I would use that favorite city question and conversation to make a case for the city and the people of Seattle that the NBA has to go back. All right. Just one quick, just you mentioned uh, your wife, Dana Jacobson of ESPN, formerly of ESPN, now of CBS. Just really quickly, how much does it help to, or I'll put it this way. Do you bring work home with you? Do you commiserate about issues with the job? Or do you just say, when you get home, we don't talk about any of the stuff we do professionally. Do you just leave it at the door? Oh, I think you live and die with the other successes. We're in a public environment. We talked about social media before, and it's 20 times harder for women in our industry as far as the stuff that they get. You know, I, I have sort of a tenure job. I, you, know, you get it once in a while, but it's not nearly as bad as it can be for women on the air. She's in a higher profile job. So you always want to be you know, supportive. This is not the most um, kumbaya of professions that we have chosen. You know, we covered in sports, you're covering a team your whole life. Broadcasting, we're almost not only on our own, your colleagues can sometimes be, you know, you're competing with them for spots. So there's no, you don't have that team element. Oftentimes you can within your own television, you're doing a TV game on football every week or whatever. It can exist. The team environment is great but it doesn't always so you want to have that. Uh, the downside, of course, to having a, and of course we have a head coach, he made a doku who's married to me along. So we have commiserated about having wives with more profile jobs that where it's nice to sometimes just lay back. But when you get game one against the nets at home and it's an epic playing out in front of you and the playoffs have started and you're lucky enough to have, you know, gotten the final call in a way that was certainly good enough. And they go to it on turn, they're playing it on Turner. And they play your big call. When you have this low profile job and you finally you get a little light shine on you and you make the call of this crazy play that happened at the end and Tatum scoring and you get the clock and you called it right and you've done it right. And Charles Barkley comes on and goes, that's Mrs. That's Mr. Dana Jacobson. And sometimes, you know, it's not always that there are downsides to having the uh, celebrity wife always infringing on your, you know, on your moments. Like, can I have one moment, you know, to myself, but yeah, um, very proud of everything she's she's accomplished and it's uh, it's really funny I, the joke i told literally at the wedding was when i first met her years ago she was just leaving ESP. like you're like it's always it's a guy thing right like oh a sports center a girl from sports center a girl from espn like this is the perfect dream scenario you're going to be watching monday night football and you're like this is the this is the this is the dream girl and then right after you know i first met her she switches over to news and she's on cbs news and suddenly i'm watching like a town hall with pete Buttigieg. this was not this was not the deal this is not, not what, what i signed, I signed up, for. up for there's the line <laughs> this is not this is like come on like what happened to the whole you know i'm like yeah, she was like on ESPN. She was in a Rocky movie. You know, I'm like, I got all this cool stuff. And now, I, you know, now she's got different kind of like CNN and all these news channels around in my house all day. And I just want to watch the game. All right. Well, uh, certainly, I think I, I think you speak for a lot of people. We all prefer sports to news. That's for sure. Uh, but, know. Yeah. Hey, thank you so much for taking uh, the time. Really uh, a lot of fun talking with you today. A lot of fun having you in my class those times as well. You uh, told a lot of great stories then too. So I'm glad to be able to share that with my readers. On and if I can interject as somebody that was a little guy Celtics fan having to watch the games, John Lewis knows this and Sean knows this too, but for a lot of the audience, they can't fathom that the games for the NBA finals were on tape delay in the late seventies yeah. and the early eighties. And I remember watching Cornbread Maxwell and Larry Bird 
tear up the Houston Rockets in like 1981 in the middle of the night. Yep. So this is a this is a fun thing to get to kick it around with you. And I know, like you said, you get to be with him every night. That's a cool thing, Sean. There with the Celtics. So it's hard to fathom that that tape delay thing. You know, John, you cover that. You really cover happened. It really try to, try happened. Contemplate what? How much bigger the finals was from the last time we had been? We were just talking about 2010. In the 12 years, it's amazing. Like the the Warriors, their franchise, they knew how to handle everything because they've been in the finals constantly. The 12 year gap, the thing has gotten so much. Like you thought it was big in 08 and 2010. The global thing that the NBA is now and being back in the finals, you can't even fathom the steps forward it has taken from again those. Old black and white, low def, tape delay case. Yeah. Well, you know, the interesting thing is the, the ratings are not what they used to be. But if you look at, you know, the overall spectacle, especially with a global team like Golden State, uh, it is fascinating. 2010 was well, that long ago. We have to change the metrics and how we look, right? Listen, 20 years ago, uh, Turner and USA Network. We're getting 10 million, 11 million people to watch wrestling on Monday nights. But the companies, the company, the WWE as a company is so much better off financially now than they were. And now they're getting rights fee. They got a huge rights fee deal coming up. I mean, Nick Khan left CAA and is now chief financial officer. Whatever. He's running this company. They're going to be global deals worth billions of dollars. So we can't look at. And again, as a fan, you're saying, well, the TV rating was this in 1998. Now it's this. Well, Companies worth billions of dollars now. And it's the same with the NBA. That I think David Stern was ahead of his time that way, too. He realized that it's not about how many people watch one game. It's getting your product out in as many places as possible and, and growing. Yeah, I will see the NBA continue to grow, and you'll be there chronicling it for the Celtics this season, coming up starting in October. So enjoy the rest of your offseason. you got two more months. Well, maybe, <laughs> maybe. maybe not quite. Maybe till training camp in the preseason, maybe. Oh, well, yeah, and you never know. Like I said, I was joking about the, the Winston Wolf nickname that I got years ago, and this is a play-by-play. This is a play-by-play guy story. So I had been on vacation with my son and my wife, 11, 12-day trip. We go all over the place. Anyone who has kids knows. And I split time with his mother. So I have him half the time. When that time is over, you are exhausted. You are desperately. So after 12 days of this vacation, I finally have the day where I'm going to sleep late. Remember, if you guys watch 24, in the first episode of every season of 24, there was some plot (laughs) exposition piece about how exhausted Jack Bauer already was. Of course. Before it started. Like, I am, man, I have never been so tired in my whole life. And then the 24 hours. So I am absolutely exhausted beyond belief. Finally, fall, I get my wife off to the airport, back to sleep, no dog, no nothing. Finally, go back to sleep. Two hours later, the phone rings. I look at the, you know, my watch because that's what we do now, like George Jetson predicted. And it's somebody calling from Showtime. And I know they've got a show. I know there's an MMA show the next night, halfway across the country. Uh, yeah, I looked at it like Keanu Reeves in The Matrix. Like, <laughs> do I take the pill or not? Because I know it's going to be on the other end of this call. And, you know, I'm, I glance over, it's my suitcase packed. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to take this call. And this is, again, I talked to kids about it, about being ready. So I got a call at noon on Thursday. And the following day at 5 o'clock in the afternoon on Friday, I'm in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, doing a 12-fight card on Showtime. And, again, that's the, the Winston Wolf thing. It's, that started years ago when I was somewhere in Western Canada and CBS called me to do a football game like in five or six days. And that was the idea that was, oh, Oh, you got Grandy? Just call him. Everything will be fine. Yeah, you didn't tell me. He's uh, everything will be fine. And so that's 
the business. You say, yeah, it'll be the next Celtics preseason game is whatever until the phone rings and something else comes up and, hey, we need to be, we need to call this backgammon game and, you know, Lincoln, Nebraska tomorrow. So get on a plate. Or the uh, World Pogo Stick Championships that air on ESPN two or the or ESPN eight the Ocho actually pickleball. There's stuff I've never seen. Don't before. laugh. Pickleball's getting bigger. It's cornholes out listen, there. You, There's all kinds of things. Yes. You've got teenage kids. You see it through your children's eyes. Like all of a sudden they look at it differently. That's when the whole X Games thing started, which my yeah. wife was heavily involved with. You know, we all said, "Oh yeah, skateboarding." Those are the same guys outside the library who never hit one of those moves ever. You know, they always end up falling down and wiping out whatever. And then now they're, it's a cottage industry. Cause so things are always, it's what I was saying about speaking language. Everything is always changing. You're older than you think you are. So serve your audience, not yourself. All right. I think we'll leave it there and uh, best of luck with everything that's on your schedule. <laughs> and uh, here's hoping, you know, I mean, I guess I'm not going to say here's hoping the Celtics, end the season a little earlier and give you some more time <laughs> off but that probably would be nice you know maybe maybe round two is a good it's a good finishing point a nice middle ground uh so you can get that extra month but i think i get the feeling just from talking to him john he would ju- he'd like to be exhausted in doing the nba finals again I, I'm, I'm not i'm speaking for you now who you knows? guys deal with Who here's knows? the problem Next summer here's the problem in boston and this it, it's a unique problem to boston and i get why everyone hates boston people because for the last 20 years, when I first came back here, when I, you know, it was Loserville. Bruins hadn't won. Celtics were irrelevant. Patriots have been terrible. You know, you had the stuff in the 80s. In the last 20 years, you've had nine Super Bowls, winning six. You won four World Series, winning them all. You've been to the NBA Finals three times, Stanley Cup Finals three times. So suddenly, if the Celtics, which is the how the entire history of the league has worked, you take a step back after this. A younger team goes to the finals. They always, almost always take a step back losing the second round, like you just said. People are going to lose their mind. How can they lose in the second round? They went like, so it's it's difficult when you, it takes the expectation level for anyone under the age of 35, 36 that's in New England, they don't know anything else but championships and playing for championships. And so that sounds good. The extra month of vacation, right? On paper, oh, they're losing the second round. What a great year they had. They're one of the final eight. Not good enough around here. Yeah. Indeed. I had a student uh, who did a video about the, the loss for the Bruins in 11 and like it was like so emotional. It's like it's one of the only losses they've had in, you know, the entire stretch in the championship right. series. Right, right, right. Oh, I'm sorry. That was two. That was 2011. They won. But in 19, right. they lose to in, the Bruins in game seven. Game seven. You got to game seven of the Stanley Cup. Final. And that's in Boston, those teams, the Andy Moog, uh, Cam Daly, Adam Oates teams, they're celebrated and honored as they should be, like the like the Buffalo Bills of the 90s, those Bruins teams, because they got to the Stanley Cup Finals. It's amazing. They got to the Stanley Cup Finals. And going to the playoffs, when I was a kid, your team, whether it was the Red Sox here, or I was a Mets fan growing up, if you went to the playoffs, you went to the league championship series, my God, that was like stay home from school. It was a once-in-a-lifetime event when it finally happened for me in 86 when the Mets finally got there. And now getting to the Final Four of sports here is just sort of expected. Great stuff, Sean. Thank you, my friend. You got it, guys. All right. Thank you so much. Thoroughly enjoyed that conversation with Sean Grandy. And again, we bring you all kinds of conversations like this on the sportsmediawatch.com podcast feed. 
John Lewis and I come your way midweek, but we've also got the storytelling podcast, Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, with George Offman and his different guests. Usually a Chicago connection, slant, or theme to those. You hear from George Weekly with his different guests. And also the Announcer Schedules podcast is on this feed as well. Mike Gill, Phil DeMont Mollen. Uh, They do a great job of lining up the different play-by-play announcers, analysts, radio, TV, etc., and often have frequent guests uh, from the sports broadcasting world in in specific calling games on the Announcer Schedules podcast later on in the week. So again, we thank you for finding us here as part of the SportsMediaWatch.com podcast feed. Make sure you're subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts. More great content, more conversations with sports media types, broadcasters, analysts, writers, etc. That's what we do as part of the Sports Media Watch podcast. You say you'll never join the Navy. Never climb Mount Fuji on a port visit. Or break the sound barrier. Joining the Navy sounds crazy. Saying never actually is. Learn why at Navy.com. America's Navy, forged by the sea. In our Future of Cloud survey, Deloitte discovered two approaches to innovation. Those who look at the new technologies and changes swirling around them and wonder what's possible, and those who use cloud to engineer their possible. Generating new revenue, advancing processes, and sparking cultures of innovation. Learn more about what separates these cloud innovators. Download Closing the Cloud Strategy, Technology, and Innovation Gap at Deloitte.com slash US slash cloud survey. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.